Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I'd like to begin the sermon today by talking about baseball cards, if you will hang with me for a few moments. Because back in my day, if I'm old enough to be able to use phrases like that, baseball cards came out once a year. There would be one set released at the beginning of the season, and every player in Major League Baseball would have one card, and on the front of the card would be their picture, and on the back would be their statistics from their career up to that point. But in the last few years, baseball card company Topps has started what they call Topps Now. And what that means is every day, Topps produces a limited number of cards that commemorate events that happened in the games that took place on the day before. So I was on the Topps Now website on Wednesday last week for sermon research. You can be, it was, it was work-related. And you might know that on Tuesday night, Royce Lewis of the Twins had returned from injury for the first time in over a year, I believe, and had hit a home run in his first game back from injury. And so if you had wanted, on Wednesday morning, you could have gotten on the Tops Now website and ordered a card from that game on the night before to commemorate what had happened. And I don't tell you all this just to give you a commercial about baseball cards, but because the slogan for Tops Now is the sentence, your hero, your team, your moment. The word your shows up three times in a six-word slogan. Topps now provides as personalized and specific of a baseball card as is possible. And I don't have a problem with the business model or the advertising strategy of Topps now. I think it's a good idea. I think it's interesting. But I think it's worth reflecting on the philosophy that's underneath a slogan such as your hero, your team, your moment. Because the priority there in the slogan is, pro- is providing you with exactly what you want. And Topps Now is one example, but there are all kinds we could look at in our world and find that same line of thinking. We are bombarded with messages every day that it is up to you to find the most meaningful thing for you. And call me pessimist, whatever you like, but as prevalent as that message is in our world, I am not convinced that it is beneficial. We are told we have to find meaning for ourselves, and that pursuit is slowly killing us. I mean, have you been to the cereal aisle in a grocery store lately? I mean, there are more choices than you could ever imagine. And in my world, there's only one brand of cereal that anyone needs to concern themselves with, and that's Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and we can all agree on that and move on. But if you walk down the cereal aisle at a grocery store, even if you're locked in and know exactly what you're going to buy, you have to about, okay, what box am I going to get? What size is going to give me the best deal? They have all these promotions and variations, and you have to kind of pause and look and say, is this actually the original, or is it some weird variation that I don't want to concern myself with? And then you have the generic brands close by, and they're a little cheaper, and so you have to weigh the pros and cons of, do I want to pay a little more to get a better product, or is it worth saving a few bucks here? But then if you were to take a step back and say you wanted to get a different kind of cereal completely, you look around this aisle and you have every option you could ever imagine. You have healthy cereal, sugary stuff. You have stuff for kids, stuff marketed to adults. You have every kind of vitamin or mineral, easy for me to say, that you could ever want, and probably a few more that you don't want. 
And as you're standing in that cereal aisle, you are free to buy whatever cereal you wish. In fact, in the thinking of our world that we have to construct meaning for ourselves, we would be told that this is an ideal scenario because you have every option imaginable before you so that you can find exactly what is right from you for you. And that's a message we are fed in all sorts of places, not just in the cereal aisle. It sounds promising, but in reality, it is crippling. It sounds liberating, and it leaves us with a weight we were never meant to carry, constantly looking for me, constantly wondering if we have enough, desperate to write the script of our own story, and instead of being free to do as we please, we are left crushed, burned out, anxious, depressed, and alone. We are told that we are our own, that we are free to do whatever we please, and we are left adrift like a ship without a rudder or sail. So to try to cope, we medicate. And some drink, some take pills, some eat, some watch Netflix, some work longer hours, some exercise, some have an affair, some take vacation, some self-harm, some obsess over the news, some watch pornography, some play video games, some scroll social media, some surround themselves with people that will be impressed by them, but it is all an effort to cope with the feeling that we are not enough. And maybe I'm just being dramatic, but this narrative that we are, are our own and can construct our own meaning in life is a lie from hell that will destroy us if we buy it. We have the best medical care in the world. I mean, right now as I'm talking to you, I have two computers. I have one sitting on this on this pulpit in front of me, I have another one strapped to my wrist. I mean, imagine being told 20 years ago that this is a scenario that would even be possible. We're more connected than any other generation on earth has ever been able to be, and yet in both 2020 and 2021, expectancy in America decreased. The biggest two-year decline our nation has seen in 100 years, largely due to deaths of despair such as drug overdoses and suicide the best our world has to offer is to tell us that we just need to try a little harder, accumulate a little more, get one more rung up the ladder, buy one more toy, and then life will have meaning. And if you are your own, then only you can solve that ache that you feel. And our attempts to fix that that our world puts forward are like trying to fix a gunshot wound with a Band-Aid. And instead, the message of the gospel tells us we are not our own. And that is a good thing. Over the next few weeks, we are going to be walking through a sermon series exploring the idea that we do not belong to ourselves. In fact, we belong to God. And when we know that, it brings us freedom. This sermon series was inspired by a book I actually read on vacation last year with the same name. and It's written by the author Alan Noble. And I mention that just because it was probably the best book I read in 2022. And yes, I read more than one book in that calendar year. So you can trust that recommendation. But that phrase, you are not your own, it comes to us originally from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is the passage of scripture we're going to look at here in just a few moments. But it has also been used throughout church history. In 1563, there were some theological teachers gathered at Heidelberg University in Germany, and they composed a catechism, which is a series of questions and answers that are designed to teach the basics of the faith to new believers, and they put together what is now called the Heidelberg Catechism, and that catechism begins with the question, what is your only comfort in life 
and death? And the answer to that question is, on the next slide, which says that I am not my own, but belong with body, with both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead of saying, you are your own, so go figure it out for yourself, the gospel says every fiber of your being, every second of your existence belongs to Jesus, and that is a comfort. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ because of what he's done for you, and that is the source of our meaning and purpose. The Apostle Paul gives this teaching to a church in a culture that desperately needs to hear it, just like our own. The city of Corinth was a port city in the region of Greece with peoples and customs and ideas coming in from all over the Roman Empire. And by the first century, it had made this city a moral cesspool. In the days of the Roman Empire, the phrase to act like a Corinthian was another way of saying that you were sexually promiscuous. That was the reputation of this town. But Paul had planted a church there. And after he left, he wrote this letter to them to deal with some of the issues that have popped up as the dysfunction of the world around them has crept into the church. And Paul starts in the first chapter of this letter by going after them because they're fighting over who their favorite preacher is. In chapter 5, he gets on to them because one, he has to tell one member of the church to stop sleeping with his stepmom. At the beginning of chapter 6, just before the passage we're about to read, he tells them that they should stop suing one another in court. Later in chapter 11, he will get on to them because people are getting drunk when they should be taking communion, and that is just scratching the surface. This is a church with issues. You may know that we belong to a movement of churches that goes by a few different names, but one of those names is the Restoration Movement, and that name comes from the fact that the founders of our movement had a desire to restore the church back to how it was in, in the time of the New Testament. And that is a good thing. I'm fully in support of it. As long as the church we're, from the New Testament we're trying to be like is not Corinth. This is a church full of messy people. And yet Paul, and more importantly God, did not give up on them. And I am glad for that because it says God will not give up on us. Because this church in Corinth, just like us, is trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in the time and place where they find themselves. And in this passage, Paul's correcting them because they bought into some of the teachings from Greek philosophy around them that the body was a bad thing. Uh, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who lived a little bit after Paul, he once wrote that I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. The thinking was the material world is bad, the spiritual world is good, and so the goal of life is to get away from this physical world and enter into some other realm of existence. Focus on the, the spiritual, the non-material, as opposed to this world. And when that's your belief about the world around you and your own body, that the next step then goes in one of two directions. One option is to go in the direction of denying yourself any and all pleasure or fulfillment or anything like that, avoiding anything material as much as you can. Or you go in the direction which seems to have taken place or taken root within the church in Corinth to indulge in anything you want because one day you're going to die and none of it's even going to matter. You're going to die, so why not eat an extra slice of pie or have one more drink or if you're the Corinthian, sleep with whoever you want. But the gospel says something different. 
The gospel says that if we are one person, body and soul, who fully belongs to Christ, what we do with our bodies matters to God. We belong to God. We are not our own. And that gives us our meaning and our purpose. And so to show that, Paul gives a principle in verses 12 to 14 of this passage, and then he applies that principle in verses 15 to 20. So I'm going to split this passage into two parts for us and start with 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 14. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Paul begins by quoting and correcting some of the slogans that are being thrown around among the Corinthians. And this could have been necessary, at least in part, because these slogans have come from distortions of Paul's own teaching. Starting in verse 12, apparently some people are saying, I have the right to do anything. And we could maybe see how someone could get there if they misunderstood what Paul taught about what it means to be free in Christ. Someone might hear Paul preach that you were trapped in bondage to sin. Jesus has come and he has set you free from the life of sin. And you could hear that and then decide, well, that must mean I'm free to do whatever I want. And Paul responds to that and says, sure, the grace of God means you are free from what used to hold you in bondage. But that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Not everything is beneficial. Just because you can do something does not mean that you should. You have the right to do whatever you want, but be careful, because that could turn into putting yourself back into bondage. You could decide you're free to consume alcohol, but allow that freedom to turn into the bondage of addiction or any number of other examples. Freedom in Jesus does not mean freedom to do whatever you want. That would be freedom that says you are your own. Freedom in the gospel says you belong to Jesus, and that's the source of your meaning and purpose. Paul moves on to their next slogan in verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. This was a slogan used for sexual ethics by drawing a parallel between hunger and sexual desire, which all flows out of this thinking that what you do with your body does not matter. You get hungry, go eat some food. Food exists for hunger. One day you're going to die, and it won't matter what you had for breakfast that day, so eat whatever it is that you want. And the Corinthians have taken that thinking and applied it to their sexual desires. You have an appetite, you should act on it. It doesn't matter what you do or who you do it with, because one day you'll die. Food's for your stomach, sex is for your body, end of story. And again, you could see how someone could get there by distorting the teachings of Paul. In multiple places, even in this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul will teach that we should give one another freedom on non-essential issues. spent a lot of time applying this principle to the issue of what to do with meat that has been offered as a sacrifice to other gods. In a city like Corinth, the odds are pretty good that if you go to the market and buy meat of any kind, it was probably offered as a sacrifice to some Roman or Greek god before it was brought to the market and put on sale, which raises the question, if you follow Jesus, what do I do now? Do I just go ahead and buy it and consume it because it doesn't matter? I know that all these Greek and Roman gods aren't even real, so uh, it's free. I'm free to do whatever I want, 
Or are you in some way participating in the worship of this idol by buying this meat? And to that issue, Paul's stance is essentially, do whatever you think is best underneath the guidance of the Holy Spirit and love those who do things differently from how you have decided to do it. And it seems like at least some people in the church have applied that same line of thinking to their sexual lives, saying it doesn't really matter, it's a non-essential issue, I'm allowed to do whatever I want, everyone else should just be okay with that. And Paul says it is not that simple. The slogans are coming at the issue from the perspective of how much will Jesus allow me to do before I get in trouble? It's the same logic I've seen with teenage boys when they first start to learn how to drive. Not myself, obviously, but other, other teenage boys that I've been acquainted with, uh, where they will say, well, you know, I know the speed limit is 55, but, you know, really, I mean, no one's even going to bother pulling you over until you're going more than 60, and and really, you're not even going to get a ticket until you're going more than 65, so really, I mean, if you think about it, sure, the sign says 55, but I can go 65 before I'm causing any kind of problems for myself or anyone else, and that logic comes at the issue from the angle of what can I get away with, and the perspective Paul gives here is coming at the issue from the angle of what's most helpful for me and for those around me. And that perspective shifts this conversation. Which brings us to the principle Paul gives at the end of verse 13. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Our body is not a hunk of meat we're stuck with until we die, so do whatever you want with it. It is a gift created by God to be used for his glory. Because we live in a broken world, we find ourselves confronted with our brokenness in our own bodies. We are limited by disease and injuries and things we've done to ourselves and things others have done to us. But that does not mean our bodies are bad. It does not mean God has made a mistake with us. It means God desires to use our bodies for his glory as he works through us. So we are not free to do whatever we want. But Christ sets us free so we can honor God which is the principle Paul applies in these next few verses, picking up at verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This issue is a different category from what food can you eat Because sexual intimacy brings two people together as one. So if we have been united with God through the Holy Spirit, that changes the conversation around how we are to behave, including but not limited to how we approach the issue of sex. And if you read scripture, you will find time and time again that God created this to be a good thing to be enjoyed between a man and a woman who are committed to love one another unconditionally. Any deviation from that, no matter what it looks like, does not lead to our flourishing And for that reason, sexual sin should not be taken lightly in any form. But it is important we understand what Paul is saying here. He does say sexual sin is serious. 
He does not say sexual sin is the most serious sin you could ever commit and it can never be forgiven. He says it is unique because of the effect it has on us. The grace of God is greater than any sin, but there are some scars that take longer to heal. And any kind of overindulgence or addiction, they always dull and numb our senses, and so we should not play around with sins of this nature, regardless of our feelings or the narratives of our culture. Not because God's trying to keep us from a good time, but because God desires more for us. Christ has died and risen again to make us holy. And that holiness impacts every part of our life. This is not Paul being a prude. Compared to his day and ours, the gospel has a higher view of the value of the human body. It is not something we are trapped in. It is not something we have to maintain, but is separate from who we are as a person. It is a temple. It is where God's presence dwells. And I press the illustration too far because it might not be helpful, but one of the ways holiness gets understood in the Bible is an idea of weightiness or significance. You've probably experienced what it is like to be in a place that feels weighty or significant, something that requires our attention and our reverence. A few months ago, Whitney and I spent an afternoon in an art museum, and when we got there, I did not see a sign anywhere that said, you know, no running, or it didn't say anything about, you know, keep your voice down or anything like that. Yet as we were there, everyone we were around, including ourselves, we moved very slowly, we talked very quietly, because it's a beautiful place, and there is a weightiness, there's a reverence to it that you don't want to get in the way of anyone else experiencing what is happening around you. And Paul says here that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have been made holy, You are significant. You matter. And that fact should change how we view ourselves and how we use our time, our talents, and our bodies. Jesus died to make us holy. He did not ignore the significance of our sin. He died the death we deserve so that we could be God's children. So if you have ever wondered whether or not your life matters, the fact is that Jesus has died for you, and that is the conclusive evidence to prove whether or not your life matters. God has made us holy. So we live as he's created us to live. And that's the conclusion of this passage. You belong to God. Therefore, honor God with your body. Remember what brought all this about. This is Paul asking the question of what, or answering the question of whether or not people in the church, men in the church, should visit prostitutes. And obviously the answer to that question is no. But Paul could have gone about answering this question in a lot of ways that were more practical. He could have just said no. He could have said no because it's violent, because it's coercive, because it's abusive, unsafe, unsanitary, it's unfaithful, it's bad for society. He could have said all that, but instead he says no because Jesus died, risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Christ has died for you. Therefore, live as he has called you to live. And as you do that, you will belong to God and find the life he desires for you. And that is where we find our meaning and our purpose. The gospel says that our significance does not come from what we do, how much we earn, or where we live, but from the fact that Christ died for us. That is the story that gives us our meaning and our motivation. But maybe you're listening to that and thinking belonging to God sounds restrictive. And I can understand why you might think that, but if you are, I would ask to consider the one we are saying we belong to. Because what Paul says here about being bought with a price and therefore having an obligation would not have been a foreign concept to the Corinthians. 
We have records from the Roman Empire where servants would get freedom from a master, and a lot of times that would look something like the servant saving up a lot of money and then taking that to the temple of some god and then the priest from that temple purchasing the freedom of that servant on their behalf. It was not a matter of whether or not you belonged to someone. It was a matter of whether or not you belonged to the right sort of master. And that changes the conversation. Maybe you've met someone who said they never want to get married or they never want to belong to a church or they, they will never work at this one specific place. And as you dig into that, it, you see that it comes out of a previous experience. Maybe they grew up and they saw their parents have an unhappy marriage and so they assume every marriage is like that. And so they say, I don't want any part of that. Or they grew up in an unhealthy church. They assume every church is like that and they don't want to be a part of it. Or they've heard stories about what it's like to work somewhere and they assume the worst about it. And sometimes I wonder if we hear, you are not your own, you belong to God, and assume that means God's just going to make our lives miserable. And we think that without actually considering who God is. Maybe you could imagine to someone like I just described, yeah, yeah, I know. I know that your parents had an unhappy marriage and that's not a good thing, but what if you were married to someone who didn't fight with you and who always put your needs first? Or yeah, I know you've had a difficult experience with church, but what if you belong to a church that actually lived out the teachings of Jesus? Or yeah, I know what you've heard about what it's like to work at this place, but that's not the entire story. And that's a different conversation. And the narrative that says you are your own says you have to find meaning yourself and no one else can speak to that. No matter how you go about doing that, I can promise you Whatever you are using to try to find your meaning and your significance, it has not paid a higher price for you than Jesus has. You can tell what something is worth based on what someone will pay for it. You may look at a sculpture and think, I don't get it, or you may think, I could have made that, or I'm pretty sure my kid made that out of Play-Doh. But if an art collector is willing to pay millions of dollars for it, that says more about what it's worth than whatever your opinions on it might be. And Jesus has demonstrated your worth by giving up his life for you. So whatever you have been told about whether or not your life matters or assumed about yourself, about your own worth, the message of Jesus and his death for you says above all else that your life has value and that you are loved by God and that if you trust in him, you can have life with him. This past Thursday, myself and my sister, and my brother-in-law officiated the funeral of our grandma. And first off, let me say thank you, because you all have been very kind and supportive. The elders were understanding. She passed away last Sunday afternoon. I emailed the elders Sunday night and told them what had happened, and they all told me to leave for a few days to be able to be with my family. Isaac kept the ship afloat here. The church sent flowers to my family for the funeral, so truly, thank you. But in officiating any funeral, there is an opportunity to remind ourselves of what truly matters. So the comfort of a grieving family does not come in holding a funeral, although that can be a part of it. The comfort of a grieving family is not a long line of people coming through at visitation, although that is encouraging. The comfort of a grieving family is not the meal afterwards, although it is a time to fellowship and process grief together. The comfort of a grieving family is not the legacy or the inheritance that gets left behind, or at least it shouldn't be. 
A funeral is a reminder that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to Christ. He has died and risen from the dead so that we might be his people. His love triumphs over our sin and the brokenness of this world. It promises us life, and for that reason, we honor God with everything that we have. Another way to translate that word in verse 20 that the version we've been reading from says honor would be to translate it as glorify. And the only reason I mention that is because our mission statement as a church, in case you don't know, is to glorify God. And that shows itself in all sorts of different ways, but that's where it starts. That is the through line of everything we do as a church. Our goal in it all is to bring glory and honor to God as a response to his perfect love shown for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus, the call we have is to bring honor, to bring glory to God because of what he has done for the sake of those around us. If you're not a follower of Jesus or if you have certain areas of life that do not belong to God, the message of Jesus tells us to give it up because it's not able to carry the weight we place upon it when we try to find our meaning in it. If there's anything we are not willing to give up for the sake of Christ, whether it's sex like Paul deals with here in this passage, whether it's our income, our time, our futures, whatever it might be, if we give that priority over Jesus, that is the thing we're trusting in. That is our God, not Christ, and it will not be able to bring us the meaning we hope it will. So if you have sin you need to repent of, if you have wounds that need to be healed, please reach to sin and trust. If it's here in this building, if it's somewhere else, so that you can hand that over to God who loves you so much he gave his life for you. Because it's only in that, in truly, fully belonging to God, that we find comfort. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our rock, our firm foundation, our hope, our security, our stronghold, our comfort in life and in death. And because all that is true, because you've sent your son to die on the cross and rise from the dead for us, God, we bow our knee before you. We acknowledge that you are the one true God. We acknowledge that our only hope, our our only source of life comes from you alone. And we are grateful that as we bow our knees before you, that you fill us with the presence of your spirit. And you empower us to bring glory and honor to you wherever that leads. So God, we come before you repenting of those times when we have trusted in ourselves or anything else instead of in you. And we acknowledge that when we try to find life on our own, we often and always fail. And yet we rejoice in the fact that you meet us in our brokenness and offer us life through your Son. So for whatever it looks like for each and every one of us, God, help us see what it looks like to truly, fully belong to you so that we might have life. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.